Father, so we're here. How do you turn losers into winners? That's me. I'm a loser. I need your help. We need your help. <clears throat> so, Lord, encourage us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you brought your Bibles. We're, gonna, we're going to go to a passage. It's amazing how much you can pull out out of one or two verses. Uh, but we're going to be mainly in Luke chapter 22. So I invite you to turn with me. We're going to Luke 22, whether you brought a physical Bible or a digital Bible. Maybe it's on an iPad or a tablet or a phone. Come with me. Let's go to Luke 22. We're going to see these, these uh, words <coughs> from God, from Jesus himself. Luke 22, verse 31. Here we go. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. When you see letters in red, who's speaking here? That's Jesus speaking, right? So Jesus is speaking to Peter. But notice he doesn't call him Peter. What does he call him? He says, Simon. But he doesn't just say Simon once. He says, Simon, Simon. Those of you who are parents, you've, used, you've said your, your, your child's name twice. I know one day when my little Eliana is running around and supposed to be doing chores, I'll say, Eliana? Eliana? What does it mean when you repeat someone's name? Okay, it's urgency. You better listen. Jesus has something urgent to say to Peter. He doesn't say his name once. He says it twice. He doesn't even say Peter. You know, Peter was the new name uh, that Jesus gave Simon after he confessed Jesus as the Christ in Matthew 16. Jesus calls him Simon, which is really an abbreviated form of the word or of the name Simeon. And do you know what the word Simeon means? It means hearing. So it's as if, it's as if Jesus is saying, Simon, I have important and dire news for you. Don't tune me out. Please listen and hear. Hear what I have to say. So Simon tunes in. He's, in, he's anxiously waiting for the news, like a child who is licking his lips, waiting to hear the punchline of a story. And then Jesus says this, 31, Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus said, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has what? He has asked of you, or he has asked for you. Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. One thing we notice in this text is that you don't see this in, the, uh, in your version, but in the original language in Greek, the word you is not singular here. It's actually plural. So it's, it's Jesus. He's not just speaking to Simon, but I hear him speaking to all of his disciples, including me, including all of us. And he's warning all of us that Satan demands to have us. Satan asks for us. Now, this language and this imagery of Satan going to God and bartering for us and asking for us, it reminds me of Job, <coughs> the character, that faithful Job. You remember the story of Job? Put your finger here or your bookmark. Come with me to Job chapter 1. Let's see this. Let's see this uh, bartering of Satan talking to, talking to uh, God himself. Job chapter 1, verse 6. All right, here we go. Job 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Verse 7. 
And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job Job fear God for nothing? Look at verse 10. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. You see what, what Satan's saying to God? Look, the reason that Job is following you is because you've blessed them. Because you've given him land. You've given him protection. You've blessed them. Look what he says, verse 11. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face, God. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, Guys, I don't understand all of the theological implications in this text. Sometimes it's hard to understand why God allows good people to suffer. You think of those in Puerto Rico right now. Some here have family there. I have a good friend, our friend Sarah Montanez, living in Pennsylvania. She hasn't even made contact with her family down in Puerto Rico. And so people are asking, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow good things to happen to bad, bad things to happen to good people? I don't have I don't have the perfect answer to this. I mean, it's a question that people have been asking for thousands of years. But what I do know from this text is that God limits Satan's power. Look at verse twelve again. God said. Behold, all that he has is in your power, only what? Do not lay a hand on his person. So he's saying, Satan, listen up. You can do whatever you want, but don't you touch him. And so you know the rest of the story. Raiders came in and ransacked Job's property, stole from him. And then while all of his children were, were uh, together under a house, a strong wind came and the roof fell on all of them and they all died. And they ran, they ran the, the servants ran to Job and said, Job, look what happened, your property stolen, <clears throat> your kids dead. And I don't know about you, but I would have a really hard time asking the question, God, why, God, why? But we don't see that reaction of Job in the text. In fact, look at Job's reaction in verse 20, Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. And what did he do? He worshipped. When most people would be cursing God, why, God, why? Instead, Job tears his robe, and he worships. And he says in verse 21, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. All right. Good on you, Job. Could you do it a second time? God had a second meeting. Satan shows up. Satan barters with God again. And look what Satan says now in Job 2, beginning with verse 4. Notice the text. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. Verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, He is in your hand, but spare his life. Satan, you can do whatever you want, but don't kill him. So Satan 
cursed Job with boils on his skin. Do you guys remember when you had chicken pox as a kid? My mom accidentally popped one and I was so upset. I said, Mom, why? I was screaming and I was yelling. I was crying. Boils all over his skin, worse than chicken pox. He was covered with boils from head to toe. In fact, he had to grab a piece of potsherd to painfully scrape off the boils from his skin. Can you imagine the feeling of scraping off boils from your skin? You know, his wife came to him and said, Look, Job, this God you serve, curse him. Don't, don't follow this God. But you know, Job, Job remained faithful to God. And so there are at least two implications in this text. Implication number one. What does the screen say? <clears throat> Satan is powerful. Implication number one. You know, his name is Abaddon. It means destroyer in Revelation 9.11. His name is the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, verse 10. He's also known as the, the adversary, 1 Peter 5, 8. He's known as the devil, Matthew 4, verse 1. He's known as the enemy, Matthew 13, verse 39. He's known as the father of lies, John 8, 44. He's known as a lying spirit, 1 Kings 22, verse 22. He's known as a murderer, John 8, 44. He's known as the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. He is the God of this world or the, of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Is Satan powerful, yes or no? Satan is very powerful. That's why Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, where? In the heavenly places. Look, we can't fight this God of this world. We can't fight Satan with regular weapons. We're going to need spiritual weapons to fight at this enemy. We're going to need the Word of God. We're going to need the grace of Jesus. We're going to need the power of Spirit. And I love how you guys are in this sermon series on prayer. We're going to need earnest prayer to fend off and to, 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 uh, go, to, to battle this enemy. This enemy is powerful. But here's a second implication we get from these two passages in Job. Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. Satan has to go to God first before he can go to you and to me. And while it might not seem fair that God allows Satan to harass us, I mean, God, why would you allow this? Why would you allow Satan to harass me? Do you know what I went through this week? Some here might have just gone, you've, maybe you've gone through a tough week when you're this close to giving up on your faith. While it might not seem fear that God allows Satan to harass us, let's not forget the words of Paul in Romans 8, verse 28, where he says, and we know that, let's read this together, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. The Lord may allow you to suffer right now, this week, but we know that He has a better plan for us later. And here's another promise. We might suffer in this life, but you know this text. Let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. This is the text where we get the idea that Jesus, that God does not give us more than we can bear. Is that good news to you? Jesus will not allow us to be tempted and to suffer more than we can handle. Satan has to go to God for permission. Because ultimately, 
Although Satan has power, God's the boss. He's the one in authority. Back to our text, Luke 22. Let's go. Luke 22, back to our text. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Here we go. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He may sift you as wheat. Simon Peter looks at Jesus and he says, me? Come on, really? Me? Jesus says, yes, you. He wants you, Peter, Simon, he wants to put you in a sieve and sift you. Now, do you, do you all know what a sieve is? <coughs> uh, it's a sifter, really. It's a sifter. In the ancient days, that's what it is. They would take this sieve. You know, the sieve is a, that, uh, that sifter that it's like a... a, a you, 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 have you ever d- tried to define something? Do you know what a microphone is? You know, it's a microphone. I just said, you know what a, sif- a sieve is? It's a sifter. It's really like a, a bowl-like structure that, that's me- that has mesh on the bottom. Okay, it has holes inside. And so what they would do when they would sift wheat, because that was uh, uh, their, their staple food there and during, during the ancient days, during the Israelite days, is they would go through this three-step process of threshing the grain, then winnowing the grain, and finally, they would sieve the grain. They would take the grain, they would put it into the sieve, and they would shake that sieve so that all the pebbles and the sand and the chaff would fall through the, the impurities, would fall through the cracks, and what was left inside the sieve was this good, healthy, ready-to-eat, or almost ready-to-eat grain, okay? So let's just imagine that there's a sieve right here. There's a sieve, and this is Satan's sieve. Satan, let's say that Satan's sieve has uh, razor-sharp blades. So inside the sieve are razor-sharp blades. So can you imagine there there are razor-sharp blades in his sieve? And so what he does is he puts faithful men, women, boys and girls, inside of his sieve, and he doesn't, you know, gently shake that sieve. He violently, Satan violently shakes that sieve. And he, he shakes it until our faith is ripped and torn, and we fall through the mesh into his lion's den. You see, faith cannot, can't fit through the holes in the mesh. It can't. Faith is a different shape, and it doesn't fit through the holes. So the devil wants to tear our faith apart so that we slip into his company. Satan will try to tear our faith by whispering in our ear, look, just just skip one day of prayer. You don't need to pray today. He will try to tear our faith by destroying our lives with substances and bad habits. Satan will try to tear our faith by making us think that we can save ourselves instead of trusting in Jesus. Satan will try to tear our faith, try to tear our faith by inducing us to, to trust in our money and our riches. He'll try to tear our faith by persuading us that, that God is a tyrant and that God is not a God of love. Satan will try to tear our faith by telling us to procrastinate and say, no, no, let me give my life to Jesus later. When in fact, God said, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Satan will try to tear our faith by cajoling you, cajoling, cajoling us to find our greatest pleasure in sin and selfishness rather than in Jesus. But I want to tell you today that faith has a different shape. 
Faith cannot fall through the mesh. And as long as we hold on to our faith, guess what? We're not going to fall through the cracks. As long as we trust in Jesus, we won't fall into Satan's lap. And I love how Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, he walks around, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. And what is that word? That phrase. Steadfast in the faith. Earnest in our faith, he says. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So what's the challenge? Be steadfast in the faith. Keep looking to Christ. Let's keep looking to the author and finisher of our faith. He will give you the faith we need so we can hold on and not fall through the cracks. Peter's troubled by the news. The words of Jesus sink in. Man, he thinks to himself, Satan has asked for me. He wants to sift me as wheat. He wants to destroy my faith. So what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with all this? That Satan wants is trying to destroy my life. It's the same question that we ask today. What am I supposed to do now that, that Satan is wreaking havoc in my life, my marriage, my family? He's destroying me. What should I do? Well, I thank God that the solution to our problems and to, this, and to Satan attacking us is not so much what we do, but what God does for us. Because the Bible says in verse 32, Luke 22, Luke 22, let's start with 31 again. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But look at these words. Oh, I hope this brings you joy. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. Amen? But I have prayed for you. Peter, I know you're hopeless. I know Satan is, is doing everything that he can to destroy your faith and he's going to rip your faith apart. But you can have hope, Peter. You know why? Because I've prayed for you. Guys, there's nothing more encouraging to know that Jesus is on my side praying for me. Not just you. He's praying for me personally. When my faith is weak, Jesus is on our side, interceding for us. Oh, I love what Paul said in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? Who also makes intercession for us. Meaning, he's, he's interceding on our behalf. He's, he's mediating on our behalf. He's praying on our behalf. Look, I'm praying for that. I'm praying for Elizabeth. I'm praying for Steve. I'm praying for Katie. I'm praying for Catherine. I'm praying for Nestor. I'm praying for Godfrey and for Debbie. I'm praying. I, am, I intercede. There's someone here this morning. Your faith is weak. Jesus is praying for you. You're struggling with a horrible habit. Guess what? Jesus is praying for you. Your family, your marriage is falling apart. Jesus is praying for you. You may be losing your children. They're not turning to God like you trained them to. Jesus is praying for you. Your guilt is too much to bear. Jesus is praying for you. You're getting less sleep because your child is keeping you up at night. Trust me, I know. Jesus is praying for me. You're going to know very soon on November 3, right? November 3... Your little girl is going to come out. I want you to know that Jesus is praying for you now and he is especially going to pray for you once that little child is when you're feeding her every two hours. Trust me. Jesus is praying for us. But the good news doesn't stop here, guys. Not only does Jesus pray for us, 
Look at the rest of verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have what? What did he say to Peter? When you have returned to me. When you've come back to me. So check this out. Jesus believes that although you might turn away and that you might lose your faith in him, he believes in you that you're going to come back. Now guys, how often, how often, how hard is it for us to trust someone that, that says, I'm going to do this. Hey, I'll come through. And they don't follow through on their commitment. Is it easier for you to trust that person? No, absolutely not. Maybe you'll give that person a second or a third chance. But seriously, three, three, three strikes, you're out of here. I'm not, I'm not going to trust you. You're going to give up on me? Forget it. Jesus says, Satan is going to try to destroy your faith. And you are going to lose your faith, Peter. I know. I know the end from the beginning. I know you're going to lose. But I believe that you are going to return. Let me ask you a question. What would happen if instead of criticizing someone that, 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 uh, that, that falls through on a commitment, what if we believed in them and believed that they could actually come back? What if we gave them the, gave them the benefit of the doubt and really believed that they can come around? Jesus believes that we can come back to him even when we lose our faith. Do you think Jesus could have given up on Peter? Absolutely. But he knew, he believed that he would come back. Now, Jesus knew that he would fail. Look at verse 33. Now, Jesus already knew this, verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Man, what, are the, what, a, uh, what a bold statement. All right, even if, they, even if, people, if the soldiers come in here with, spear, with spears and swords, I'm ready to stand up first. Hey, you step back, Jesus. I'm going to take... Kill me first. I'm ready. That's, what he's, that's basically what he said. He was too confident in himself. Verse 34. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times. How many times? Three times that you know me. And this is exactly what happened. Pick up the story, verse 54. Jump down to now, verse 54 of Luke 22. Here we go. Here's the story. Having arrested him, Jesus is now arrested. They just left the Garden of Gethsemane. They led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Verse 55. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Verse 56. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. Now check out Peter's words. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Strike one. I was, a, I was at a Rockies game last Sunday. Okay, so I, Strike one. Let's keep going. Verse 58. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Strike two. Keep going. 59. And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. Check out verse 60. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Strike three. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed just like Jesus predicted. Satan thought to himself, got him. I got him. He fell through the mesh. He's in my court now. I got him. I got him. Look at verse 61. And the Lord turned 
and looked at Peter. Can you imagine Jesus in the distance, captured by the, the, the soldiers in the Sanhedrin, and he looks, he looks right at Peter. Can you imagine the look? I mean, if you were in Peter's sandals, imagine that look from Christ. And it wasn't a look of how could you or a look of how dare you, but how could you? I love you. We're friends. You just told me that you would be ready to die for me. Jesus' eyes are glazed with sorrow. A flood of guilt rushes over Peter. And, and Peter, he's ashamed like a guilty dog whose head and ears are drooping, tail is between his legs after he betrays his master. Verse 61, keep, keep going. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter remembers. Peter remembers. And check out verse 62. So Peter went out. And what did he do? He wept. He doesn't say he cried. He wept bitterly. He's bawling like a baby. He's crying. How could I do this to my master, my friend? But just in case you think it's over for Peter, there's some sweetness in his bitterness. You know, there's a difference between being sorry for something that we've done and being sorrowful. Do you know the difference between the two? Judas, you've heard of Judas before, he was sorry for what he did, but his regret did not accompany, was not accompanied by a change of mind. He was sorry for his actions, not for his motives. Therefore, he did not repent. And what did he do? He committed suicide and he hung himself. That's being sorry for yourself, feeling sorry for yourself. On the other hand, Peter was not only sorry, he was sorrowful. He's so sorrowful that his remorse leads him to renounce self and say, man, I've trusted in myself too much. I need help. Forgive me. He goes to God and he clings to God. You know, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. When, while Peter is dejected, the good news is that the Holy Spirit is not giving up on him. Hey, I'm still working with you. This Holy Spirit generates guilt in Peter's heart. This guilt is necessary for Peter to receive the sweet forgiveness of Christ, the gift of faith from Jesus. You know, some have asked, man, how do I know that I've committed the unpardonable sin? What if I've already committed the sin that can't be pardoned anymore? I want to share with you some good news. The fact that you might be worrying, have I committed this, the sin that God can't forgive, is actually a sign that you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Can you say amen? amen? It's good news. Because that guilt, that, ooh, I need to turn back to God, that's a spirit still working with you. Your guilt is a sign that the, the Holy Spirit is still wooing you to Jesus. You know, there's nothing too bad that Jesus can't forgive. Your life isn't too messy that Jesus cannot clean you up. God's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. His ear is not deaf that he cannot hear. Jesus' eye is not blind to your continual tears. Come to Jesus. He's wooing you. Come back home. He's praying for you. He believes you can come home. And one last encouraging word in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, what does he say? He says, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. Did you know that Jesus trusts losers to do his work? 
Moses, we learned about Moses here in our children's Sabbath school, ages zero to three. I'm older than three, but my little, little girl was in there. Moses, he killed an Egyptian, but did God still use Moses to save his people? Absolutely. Yes, he did. David committed adultery. Did he face some tough consequences for his actions? Of course. He lost his son. He had, he had irresponsible children. They followed after his pattern. But did God still use David as king? Yes. Could Jesus still use Peter, this loser, who just failed him at the time he needed him most? Yes. Peter denied Jesus three times, but his repentance was real. And I love, I love this line. <coughs> This, uh, by Ellen White, third volume of the Testimonies, page 416. Peter denied the man of sorrows in his acquaintance with grief in the, his, in the hour of his humiliation. But he afterward repented, and he was reconverted. So, you have, ever, have you ever heard that term, reconversion? I mean, yeah, we're converted once, but to be, it means to be transformed. But to be reconverted and to be retransformed, that can happen. And trust me, it doesn't happen once in your life. It happens on a daily basis. I constantly have to go to Jesus and say, God, like Peter, forgive me. Forgive me for betraying you. Notice, notice his last line. He had true contrition of soul and gave himself afresh to his Savior. Do you know what happened in Acts chapter 2? God used this loser, Peter. And God uses him to turn the world right side up. He preaches the first, really the first evangelistic series. And God uses this loser to baptize 3,000 people and they they formed the first Christian church. God turns losers into winners. God took this loser, Peter, and turned him into a soul winner. Guys, man, you guys, you don't don't really know me. I grew up in the city of Chicago. I'm a city boy. Catherine's a city girl. She grew up up in Jakarta, Indonesia. And I grew up in Adventist schools, Seventh-day Adventist schools, Christian schools all my life, except for two years of high school, one year of college. But guys, I got sucked into, I got sucked into the, the, um, the world, sucked into the culture. But my friends, my friends invited me, hey, you've got to hear this speaker. I heard this speaker for the first time in a public high school. He talked about God's love for me and how he's coming soon and how he wants to give me strength and victory. And I've, Jesus found me there in Prosser High School in, 2000, in August 2002. And I found Jesus there for the first time in my life. He saved me from my complacency, from my worry, from my habits, from my idleness, from my self-sufficiency. And God, God took this skinny Filipino kid from the city of Chicago and turned him into a pastor. This, it was never my dream Pastor Martinez, you were talking about your dream and vision. It was never my dream and vision to even do this with my life. But God turned this loser into a soul winner. And if he can do that for someone like me, he can do that for you. Guys, I don't want you to forget this. How does Jesus turn losers into winners? How does he turn the faithless into the faithful? You know what he does? Verse 32. But I have prayed for you. Jesus turns losers like me, like us, into winners by praying for us. You know, we're in this series on prayer. When we pray, trust me, God God will save us from falling through the cracks. He'll give us faith. 
but you know that you know what the temptation is when we ha- we always have these sermon series in prayer, and I'm not, I'm not against them. We need them. The potential problem of messages about prayer is that we think that the weight of praying belongs to us. That we are the ones who are ultimately responsible for praying. So if I pray more, then God will. And yes, there is an if and then. There is a a cause and effect. I believe that. But the the challenge is that the more we talk about prayer and how much we need to pray, and we might even guilt our friends, hey, you got to pray more, we got to pray more, hey, let's wake up at 5 in the morning and pray more. I'm not against that. I'm all about praying together early in the morning. We do that every Wednesday morning at 7 at Campion, right there in the sanctuary. I'm not against that. But could it be that the focus of talking about prayer, we start thinking that we are the ones responsible for praying, and we forget that really there's someone in heaven who prays more than we can ever pray in our lifetime. In fact, Jesus prays more than all of us combined. All all the prayers, let's say, I'm, I'm 34, and there might be someone who's older. Let's take all of our ages, all of the times that we have prayed throughout our lives, collectively, will never outmatch Jesus' prayers for us. So this reality that Jesus is praying for me and for you is refreshing. Why is that? Because when I fail to pray, like me this morning, I spent some time in prayer, but I didn't spend the normal amount of time in prayer. Even when I fail to pray, Jesus is still praying for me. Even when you miss out a day in prayer, let's say this week you prayed three times this week. You can either, you can guilt yourself to death and say, oh man, I just, just wallow in your guilt and, and, and pull out a box of Kleenex and just cry, your, cry your, uh, yourself to sleep. Guys, you don't have to do that because Jesus prays for me. Let's be honest, we're never going to come to a place where we say we've prayed enough. Even if you were to pray three hours a day, you'll always feel like, I could be praying more. I have a friend. He prays at least two or three hours every single morning. But I bet you if I go to him and say, hey, do you feel like you could be praying more? Absolutely. We're always going to be in a place where we could be praying, praying more. So the reason that this reality that Jesus is praying for me is so refreshing is that my prayer life is not dependent on what I do, but what Jesus is doing for me. In other words... I don't need to fall into this trap of guilt and beat myself up. Oh, how could you, Nezer? How could you? How could you? For not praying enough. The reality is that I will never pray enough. My praying is not based on my performance, but His love. I don't pray out of duty because I have to. I pray because Jesus is praying for me. He's pursuing a relationship. The reason I pursue Him through prayer, privately and together as a church with other believers... The reason I pursue Him is not because I want to give myself points for praying more and put put more coins in the the points machine. Yeah, good job, Nestor. No. The reason I pursue Him is because Jesus is constantly pursuing me and He's praying for me. And guys, isn't this the gospel? Isn't the gospel the reason I love Jesus Jesus is not to gain His favor or save myself or earn credit in heaven? The reason I love Jesus is because He's doing everything to show me that He loves me. And my hope in prayer, my hope in prayer, is that this reality, that Jesus is praying for you, is the true motivation, the true source of why you pray. Not because, yes, it's okay for me to pray for my family who don't know Him yet. Yes, it's okay to pray, God, please reach, reach all of these people in Castle Rock and use me to reach people. We need to pray those prayers. But my, the danger is that 
we place the performance on ourselves rather than trusting in Jesus. And trust me, we'll, we, we, we can pray for this city night and day, but there's someone, there's someone who is praying more than us, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. So is there someone here today, as we sing our closing, closing song, our song of response, is there someone saying, Look, Jesus is praying for me, and so I'm going to decide to pray to him, and I'm going to decide to turn my, turn my life to Jesus. Maybe you're saying, man, Jesus has decided to do everything for me. Today, I want to decide to follow him in response. Is that your, your desire?